0: Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 22. And the title of this message is What is a Hebrew and you to do with all that theology? What is a Hebrew and you to do with all that theology? The reason I'm calling this message such is because today's text marks a turning point in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18, was primarily theological in nature. It was really a long theological argument for the preeminence of Jesus Christ arguing that he is preeminent over the three pillars of ancient Judaism, that is angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. The second part of the book, which we get into today now, deals with the practical application of the theology of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So what does the preeminence of Christ mean in the walk of the believer? Practical application now based on theology. The rest of the book is linking doctrine and deeds. Explanation with application. Creed with conduct. Precept with practice. And instruction with exhortation. And so we'll get our first couple of action points in the text today, and I'll just summarize what they are very briefly. The action points we'll receive in today's text are these. Number one, worship God intimately and continually. And number two, live a life that is being continually transformed. That's what the text says to us today. Let's read it starting in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is for us a refuge where we are able to quiet all the rhetoric and all the claims and come into pure, unadulterated, unspoiled truth. Thank you that your word is such. Thank you that your word transcends the drama of this world. Thank you that it is timeless and it's authoritative for all times, all cultures, all people. And we ask that this morning, Lord, you would work it deep into our hearts, that you would cause us to be worshipers and that you would cause us to be people that pursue transformation and live transformed lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come now and instruct us. We ask together that you would author my thoughts and that every syllable that falls from these lips would be from your throne and to your glory, Jesus Christ, We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the crux of this passage is there in verse 22 where it says, let us draw near. That is really the crux. That's the hinge that it hangs on. That's the focal point. But let's look in verse 19 and begin to break it down. Verse 19 says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Confidence to enter the holy place. We've been talking about the new covenant in our study of the book of Hebrews, this covenant of grace by which we are saved, the one that God spoke about to Israel in Jeremiah 31, the one that we're grafted into, the covenant of salvation, the covenant of grace, that God deals with us apart from merit and demerit, and according to the standing in the work of Jesus Christ, the covenant of grace. And what's important for us to realize as people who are in the covenant of grace as Christians is that we are to have confidence to come into the presence of God that our approach to God is to be confident and joyful not tentative and fearful under the old covenant it was always tentative and fearful because God dealt with his people according to merit and demerit but no longer We're accepted because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so always we need to remember that we can enter into the presence of God with confidence and with joy. And that helps us to think about where should I go when I blow it? Because does anybody here ever blow it? Does anybody here ever blow it like really big? Like you hope nobody ever knows how bad you blow it? Okay, I'm I'm one of those guys. I'm one of those guys. And you know, sometimes it's hard to know where to go when you blow it, especially when your sin is so shameful and you're so embarrassed of it that you don't feel like you could go to any living person. Well, Satan would want you to feel isolated. He'd want you to feel that there's nowhere that you could go. He'd want you to feel that you're under the old covenant, that God's going to be mad with you, and he's going to deal with you according to demerit and your sin. We've got to remember the benefits of the new covenant, that God deals with us according to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that the price for that shameful sin has been paid for, dealt with, buried in the deepest sea, removed as far as the east is from the west. Therefore, we know where to go. We go to Jesus. When we sin like that, we go to Jesus. And we can go with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. And because that work is finished and applied to our lives, we go with joy. I mean, this is counterintuitive, counter everything, that when we really blow it and we feel horrible, as we often do, We can enter into the presence of God with confidence and joy because there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And Christians, I don't think we fully realize it. I think a lot of you are former religionists and you're still caught up in religion and you think there's gotta be some time when God's gonna be mad and upset and disappointed with me. But brothers, the Bible that I have, and the brother that you, in the Bible that you have, says that that was dealt with at the cross. That He really did deal with it. It really is done to tell us I paid in full, and so we really can come expecting forgiveness and acceptance from Jesus Christ. You got to know where to go when you blow it. Don't play the fool for the enemy and wallow in shame and guilt. That is not God's will for you. His will is that you repent, confess, and be done with it, and be accepted and adored by the Father. The word translated confidence connotes a freedom of expression and openness in speech and in conduct. A freedom of expression of, of, of speech and conduct. It depicts the opportunity to address a superior apart from personal fear and apprehension. This word in ancient Jewish thought related to prayer, approaching God in prayer. We have the freedom to express orally and in our hearts the concerns and requests of our lives. We have the freedom to come before God with those things. Not with arrogant, outspoken brazenness. That's not what we're talking about. But confidence in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because he is our high priest, we have courage and a reasonable boldness to approach God, to bring our drama to him in prayer, to bring our drama to him in prayer. Those messes that we make that we know nobody else can deal with and we don't even want anybody else to know, we can bring them before the Father. I have two kids. My son Isaiah is seven. My daughter Daisy Love is four. And I've learned more about the nature and the work of God through interacting with my children than through any other relationships I've ever had. And this week, my little Daisy Love, in fact, it was just yesterday, my little Daisy Love, she's just four, she came to me and she had, uh, at some festival her school did, she had gotten a little necklace. There was a little prize package and there was a little necklace in it It was a little silver chain and it had a, Uh, dog tag with a cross on it. Very cute for a little four-year-old, I guess. You know, some pink or something. But anyway, she had this little necklace and she was excited about it. She came home from school on Friday and she was all stoked about this necklace with the cross and and she was just loving the thing. And, you know, I don't know why she did this, but she went in her room yesterday afternoon and she broke the chain into about 40 different little pieces. She just went and just uh, snapped it and snapped it and kept on snapping it and snapping it. And so she snapped it, and she's carrying around in her hand this pile of broken necklace. And then I informed her that she would be spending the afternoon at her grandmother's house, and she's just absolutely nuts about grandma and grandpa. And she always wants to share with them her favorite things. Well, her favorite thing that week was that necklace. And she realized that she had just made a mess of the thing and broken it into a hundred different pieces And she came before me with her hand open, the necklace in her hand trembling with tears. Just her hand was trembling and giant tears rolling down those fat cheeks, just weeping that she wanted to show her necklace to grandma, but she broke it and just weeping so hard as if the world were ending. And of course, what am I thinking? I'm thinking, you little dork, why'd you break it? (laughs) What were you thinking when you dismantled the thing in your room? What was going through your mind when you were all alone and you did that? Though I thought that, I didn't dare say that to her. She was too heartbroken. I reached out and I grabbed her in my arms and I held her tight and I said, I know, baby, I know. It's okay, sweetheart. It's all right. Don't worry, honey. It'll be okay. And who knows what we're thinking behind closed doors when we break things and make messes. But my little daughter came to me and you know what? she was expecting to receive sympathy, mercy, comfort, and love. And we can expect that from God because of Jesus Christ. With the biggest messes, when our hands are before us trembling and the tears are falling, we can expect to receive sympathy, mercy, help, comfort, and to be heard by our God because we are his children. And that is only made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews 4:16 says, "We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses." Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. People, you've got to know where to go with your brokenness. You've got to know where to go with your messes. Jesus Christ is the one that can deal with them. He's bigger and he's sympathetic and he's merciful and he's kind and the Father wants to scoop you up in his arms and say, I know, but it'll be okay. Because you know what? It really is with Jesus Christ. It really is he really is bigger than our messes. Verse 20 now. It says by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Notice that the way to God allowed to us in the new covenant is new and living, a new and living way. That word new in the Greek means freshly slaughtered. Isn't that quaint? A freshly slaughtered way. It's speaking about the cross of Jesus Christ. And when it says a living way, it's talking about his resurrection. That is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and then rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and the devil. And so we have a new, freshly slaughtered and living, resurrected way. That is Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice that it's called entering through a veil, that is his flesh. Now, when the flesh of Jesus Christ was broken upon the cross, we saw there the love of God. Don't mistake that. We see in the brokenness of Jesus upon the cross an incredible picture and reality of the love of God. Romans 5.8 says God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still unlovable, he was pierced through for our transgressions. And the veil which was torn is his body upon the cross for you and I. And in an incredible moment of symbolism, Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 tells us that when Jesus gave up the ghosts on the cross that the veil in the temple was rent or torn in two from top to bottom. That veil, history tells us, was 60 feet long, 30 feet high, and six inches thick. Who could tear that from top to bottom but God the Father himself. And when Jesus Christ's flesh was torn on the cross, the Father reached down and tore the veil in the temple in two, therefore signifying to all of humanity that the old covenant was fulfilled and completed and that the new and living way of the flesh of Jesus Christ was inaugurated. And so come ye unto God, all you people, says the Holy Spirit, once and for all upon the cross for you and I. And his flesh being broken on the cross revealed the purpose of creation and man. You see, it takes us back to Genesis when God made man. God did make man. Formed him out of the dust of the earth, the Bible says, and breathed life into him. God made man and God made woman. And he placed them in the garden. And God intended to have open, free, loving relationship with man. That was his intent. That was his purpose. He made man that man might enjoy and worship God forever. That was the intent. That was the purpose. Open, free, intimate communication and communion and relationship with man in the garden. But when man fell in the garden, he went from fearlessly being with God to hiding in shame from God. Genesis 3, 8 through 10 says that they were hiding there in the garden after the fall. And the ultimate result, of course, is the curse. And then, heartbreakingly, that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And a cherub was placed there to guard the way back in. And that garden was representative of relationship with God and communion with God and nearness and an unbroken relationship. And God kicked them out of the garden because of their rebellion, because of their sin, and then he placed there a beam to guard the way back in, denoting that relationship was broken. And there wasn't a way back in until Jesus Christ until his flesh was torn on the cross for you and I, removing shame and restoring boldness, removing separation and restoring intimacy, communion, and communication. And this happens through the new and living way, Jesus Christ, which reveals the intent of God and opens a way to God. And so there is a restorative, Character to the cross of Jesus Christ. And we now have access as humanity had in the garden. And we have access because we have an advocate. Verse 21 says, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus is called the great high priest over the house of God. Now of course throughout the book of Hebrews we've had all this imagery and analogy from the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament priests. And the job of the priest in the Old Testament was to represent man before God. The prophet represented God before man. But the priest represented man before God. And the Old Testament priest, the high priest rather, in this representation of man before God, had this breastplate that he would wear. And we have a little artist's rendering of it here. There's a sort of the midsection of the high priest there. And you see that golden breastplate, and it had 12 stones placed in it by the command of God. Each stone representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as that high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood sacrifice to make a covering for the sins of Israel for one more year. As he went in there, he went in there wearing that breastplate, representing all of the nation of Israel before God. So the job of the priest is to represent the people before God. Now, the analogy that's made in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And he represents us in a wonderful and unique way. We have in Isaiah chapter 49 a prophecy that I believe pertains to the person of Jesus Christ. We'll look at it on the screen. Starting in verse 14 of Isaiah 49, it says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a, nursing, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Thousands of years before the cross was even invented, there was a prophecy that Jesus Christ would represent not with the breastplate but with the very wounds in his hands. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And what does it say in Hebrews 7.25? It says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ makes intercession for us. That doesn't mean that he's up there praying to the Father all the time about your little dramas. That's not what that means. It means that He's the advocate, the representative, and he has inscribed us on the palms of our hands because, of his hands, because there is an accuser. Revelation chapter 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and that he stands before the throne of God day and night making accusations. And no doubt he knows what we do behind closed doors in our rooms. He knows the vows that we break and the messes that we make. And he lives to accuse us before the Father. But Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, bearing the wounds which say forever to tell us paid in full, taken care of, done away with. He is forgiven. She is forgiven. They are covered and removed by the blood. And so, as real as the accusations of the enemy are in your life, so much more real should the blood of Jesus Christ be. Because he's the great high priest over the house of God. And he represents us before the Father as standing forgiven. Now, Jesus not only points the way to God as a priest would. But when we get there, part of the ministry of Jesus Christ is introducing us into the very presence of God. There's a big difference between being able to point the way and bring into the presence of. If you and I were visiting Washington, D.C., as I did last year, I might be able to point you to the White House, but I wouldn't be able to get you inside to sit down with the president. I couldn't do that. I could point the way all day long, but I would be powerless to get you inside and in the presence of. But you understand, Jesus Christ doesn't just point the way to the Father. He brings us into the presence of the Father. Now, this is important because we live in a culture and in a religious world, a a, a world that's weird, by the way. We No, duh, but... We live in a world of increasing dichotomy. We live live in a world that is daily getting more religious and yet is daily getting more secular. I don't know if you've observed that, but that's the way our world is going. There's an increased polarization happening in our world. We're getting more religious and we're getting more secular. But in this context, there is this claim that all roads lead to God. And what stands over and against that claim is the claim of exclusivity made by Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. That claim of exclusivity. Now, it is true in one sense that all roads do lead to God. What? Right now there's panic in your little corazones. Your little sheepy hearts are saying, the pastor, he's gone liberal. What's going on here? He's gone apostate. No. All roads do lead to God, but there's only one that doesn't lead to judgment before God, and that is the way of Jesus Christ. Any other route will get you before God. It's an event called the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, where you will be judged for your sins. Only Jesus Christ delivers us into the presence of God with full joy because only He has ever offered to pay for our sins, which He did upon the cross, and has risen from the dead to give us brand new life. And so He doesn't just point the way, as many claim to do, but He will bring us into the presence in a certain way. Colossians 1.22 says this, And verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We must understand that. Are you guys awake today? Okay, because I'm going to start beating you if you don't... Give me a little action here. We must understand that when we get to heaven, we will stand before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That it's not going to be as though you made it in by the hair of your chinny, chin, chin, and the skin of your teeth. It's not as though the Father's going to be standing there with arms crossed going, oh. Dude, you really lucked out. I mean, you just barely, boom, slid under the gate there. Peter was late closing it. You just barely made it in. You lucky dog, go sit in the back. (laughs) Nor is there something called purgatory. The Bible speaks nothing of it. Jesus Christ has so dealt with our sins that when we stand before the righteous judge with the royal diadem upon his head and whose eyes are aflame with fire, we will be accepted and adored, made holy and blameless by the blood of Jesus Christ and there will be great rejoicing in that day. Jude, 24 and 25 speak of it. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Blameless, with great joy in the presence of a holy God. Understand what a privilege it is to be in the new covenant. Israel knew no such confident approach to the presence of God. Everything after the garden spoke of separation between God and man. Only Jesus has brought us near. I told you before that God speaks to me through my children. He also speaks to me in the shower. That... Seems to be where I get some of my greatest revelation is in the shower. I I don't know why that is, but when discussing that one time with a friend, they said, well, no, duh, it's the only time where you're naked and alone. I said, that makes perfect sense. I'm naked and alone before God. He's got my attention. God speaks to me in the shower all the time. In fact, many of the sermons that you guys hear have been worked out in the shower. I hope that doesn't give you a bad mental image. Banish it. I've gone too far. Banish it back up. I wear clothes in the shower. God speaks to me in the shower. And the other day, as I was thinking about this lesson, he spoke to me so profoundly. I was there in the shower, and again, my little four-year-old, Daisy Love, she came in the room. She walked in the bathroom, and she said, Daddy, Daddy. And you could just hear by the tone of her voice. She was just so excited. And I was washing my hair, and so I had soap in my eyes and everything. She goes, Daddy, Daddy, look, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And she just wanted me to look at her. Okay, hold on, sweetie, hold on. And so I wash all the soap out of my hair and out of my eyes, and I open up the curtain, and there's my little daisy love. And she was standing in the most beautiful little dress. It was a little princess dress. It was white, silk and it flared out at the bottom and it had little green and silver stones woven into it and little puffy sleeves. And then she had these silver sparkly shoes on, the cutest little things you've ever seen. And she had a crown on her head, a pink crown. I don't know where she got it. And while she was standing there, She was so excited for me to see her. She was literally coming out of her skin. She was just wringing her hands like this, and she had the biggest smile on her face, and she's bouncing up and down like this going, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, look. She was so excited for me to look at her. And of course, as a father, I was just enthralled and overwhelmed to behold her. She was so beautiful. There in just that shining gown and that crown upon her head. And I looked and I rejoiced and as I closed the curtain, God spoke to me. He basically said, you know, she didn't buy any of that. Your wife got that for her, dressed her all up, put the shoes on her, put the dress on her, put the crown on her head. She didn't earn any of it. She didn't work for it. She didn't deserve it. But boy, she sure wanted you to see it. And nothing in the world mattered more than her daddy looking at her at that moment. And you know, Revelation 19 says that one day we will be clothed in righteous garments and that we'll have crowns upon our heads and that we will stand before the Father and none of it will be according to merit We won't have earned any of it. It will all be by grace. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we will be dressed in dazzling white silk, so to speak, with that crown upon our head, and we'll stand before the Father, and nothing in the world will matter except for Him and us and in His presence. And so verse 22 says... Let us then draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. The result of all of this theology that we've been learning, this Christology, the theology of Jesus Christ, about the preeminence of Jesus Christ, everything that we've learned from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18, the crux of it all is let us draw near. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, let us come near to him. Now, draw near there is a ritual term that refers to worship. Verse 22 is saying to you and I, in light of all of these things, let us worship God. Let us realize now and in eternity that throne room experience. Let's enter with confidence to the throne of grace. That word drawing near in the original, meaning worship, it's in the present tense, which denotes for you and I that we are to be continually worshiping. We are to cultivate, now this is the application of all the theology we've learned, we are to cultivate lifestyles of worship. What does it mean to worship but to adore? How is it done? It's done through all of our lives. It's done in the things that we say, it's done in our thought life, and it's done in our conduct. What does it mean to worship but to adore, to extol, to lift up on high, to praise the name of Jesus? And the end result of theology is that we should be worshipers of Jesus Christ. And if you have theology but not a heart and an attitude of worship, you've missed it. You've missed it. You are, as A.W. Tozer once said, like a gun barrel straight as could be, theologically speaking, but hollow and empty in the middle. If your theology hasn't brought you to an attitude of adoration, you've missed something here in the book of Hebrews. Because what we've seen is Jesus Christ, high and exalted and portrayed as preeminent. And what we've seen is that his great sacrifice is able to bring us near to God. And so the application is draw near. Cultivate lifestyles of adoration and worship. And by the way, that verb is imperative. And voice, meaning it's a command. It's not an option. The Bible says "Do you, draw near. Worship God like the psalmist said in Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. He said, come on, guys. This is right and good. Let's cultivate lifestyles of worship. Here's why it's hard. Because we who are Christians live in two worlds. We really do. We live in two worlds. We live in this world, and yet our citizenship is in heaven. And the prayer that we pray is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are caught between two worlds. And the danger of living in two worlds is that we might neglect the one that at times seems ethereal for the one that is tangible that we get caught up in the physical things and neglect the spiritual realities. That's the danger of living in two worlds. And we need to be mindful that we live in two worlds and so to press into the throne room of God, to find ourselves in a place of worship, to cultivate an attitude of adoration. There's a real danger living in this tangible physical world that we neglect the throne room of God. And I'll confess that it's a battle. And I'll say to you today, Christians, battle. Battle. Let your mind be set on the things that are above where Christ is, Colossians chapter 3 says, and not on the things of this earth. Cultivate throne room experience, drawing near to God. How do we do it? My son has begun reading the Bible for himself in the last couple of months, a lot more than usual. We got him a new one. It's a cool kid's Bible. It's called the Adventure Bible. And, uh, but it's a real deal, it's a, you know, NIV or whatever, and he's been reading through the Psalms, and uh, the other night I went to go tuck him into bed, and he said, Daddy, let me read you some stuff from the Psalms. <laughs> In Daddy's heart, that's it, that's as, that's as good as it gets right there, I'm a little seven year old, let me read you some stuff from the Psalms. And and he he pulls down his Bible, and, you know, just like Daddy's got tabs in his Bible, he's got these little tabs where he marks Psalms, and he goes, Daddy, my favorite is Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. I go, my 7-year-old has a favorite Psalm and verses? Okay, cool. And so I don't want to butcher it. It's his favorite passage. He goes, Daddy, my favorite is Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5, and he read it to me. And it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. And he read that and he said to me, Daddy, isn't that good? I said, yeah, preacher's kid, that is good. And he's been repeating it all week when we get time alone. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And my seven-year-old has been pushing me to a life of worship. I want to push you to a life of worship. Amen. I want to push you to a life of worship today and say don't neglect the throne room of God because we are incredibly privileged by the blood of Jesus Christ to be able to confidently enter in. Don't get so caught up in this world that you neglect the restorative quality of the cross bringing us back to the garden walking in the cool of the day with our God. Don't miss that. It is the outflow of theology. It is the application. And the way that we draw near to God is twofold. We see in verse 22, with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. The way that we draw near to God is twofold. With a sincere heart, number one, and an assurance of faith, number two. Now, what does it mean to have a sincere heart? It means having a real devotion. It means to have sincerity without superficiality. Sincerity without superficiality. It means to be without ritualistic conformity. It means to come before God without hypocrisy or ulterior motive. So to break it down again, approach God in an attitude of worship. Don't be superficial. Be wholehearted about it. Don't be ritualistic or religious about it. Be passionate and fervent about it. Our God is an awesome God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's a Savior God. All glory is due to his name. He is great and greatly to be praised. And when you come before him, don't do it in some silly church religion attitude. Do it with hearts lifted high to him. Do it with sincerity, not superficiality. Do it for intimacy, Not ritualism. And do it without hypocrisy or ulterior motive, meaning don't come to God in an attitude of adoration because you want to get something from Him. That's just as dirty as could be. That's called flattery. God's not looking for our flattery, He's looking for our worship. Come to Him just leaving your drama at the door and just worship Him because He's worthy. Your life isn't making sense, He's still worthy. The dots aren't connecting, He's still worthy. You're sick, he's still worthy. Death is imminent, he's still worthy. You're broke and the recession hurts, he's still worthy. He's worthy. And the outflow, the application of good and right theology is we are to worship him continually with a sincere heart. And I'll confess that that at time takes some work because we are people that are so easily distracted, so given to idolatry in the flesh. Jeremiah 3.10, God complained and said, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. Judah was coming back. They were wayward at the time, and they would come back, but they were only playing church, so to speak. They weren't coming before God with all their heart, but with deception. You know what? That's true of some of you today. You're here, but you're just playing church. You've got me fooled, You've got the person in the chair next to you and behind you and in front of you fooled, but you don't have God fooled. God is concerned with the heart and he looks upon the heart and he's after your heart. And he complained and said, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. She was playing church. She was going through the religious motions. In a different translation, it says, Judah has never sincerely returned to me. She has only pretended to be sorry. Only pretended to be sorry. And we do that a lot. And you know what? God never asks us to be sorry. He calls us to repent. And there's a big difference between being sorry and repenting. Repenting means changing mind and changing course, it means doing an about face. And so if you're fooling around with sin this week, don't be sorry, get right. Don't say, I'm sorry, repent. Change your mind about that action and that attitude. Ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart and then you change your direction. Get right with God this week. Be found a worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth in a sincerity of heart, not in duplicity, not with a facade, not in superficiality, but in reality. Worshiping the Lord of heaven and earth because he's interested in your heart. And there's no reason for us to come before him with falsehood because he forgives all of our sins. And through that forgiveness, we are accepted. So there's no reason to play games with God. You're not fooling him. He knows he wants to forgive. Confess and repent and get right and be accepted and adore him. That's a protocol for the Christian. The second way that we draw near is in full assurance of faith, meaning simply really believing that God does these things that he said he does. He does that we really are forgiven. I know that for some of you that's incredibly hard to believe because I counsel with you. You counsel with me. We sit together. We talk. For one reason or another, some of us have the hardest time believing that God really forgives us, really accepts and adores us. I don't know what to tell you other than the Bible says that he really does and Jesus Christ actually, literally, historically died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so actually, literally, historically, your sins have been dealt with. And that you're standing before him is now one in grace, favor, merit, mercy, acceptance. And so we need to come before him in full assurance of faith, really believing that these things are true. And what that does then is frees us from fear. You see, Satan wants you bound up in a lifestyle of fear. And religion has done that to many of you for decades, taught you to fear God in the wrong way. We are to fear God. He's holy and he's awesome. We are to revere God. And we should be fearful when we cultivate a lifestyle of sinning. But when we come before him on the basis of Jesus Christ, we should be free from fear. That's what the full assurance of faith means. Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, Daddy. Abba is Aramaic for Daddy. By which we cry out that cry of intimacy, standing at the door of the throne room saying, Daddy, and there we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I'll tell you, the Father peeks his head out and he's delighted as you are to see you standing there clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so enter in with full assurance. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. And then finally, and we finish, the means by which we draw near. It says there that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. The Hebrew audience of the letter would have understood this because religious life for the ancient Hebrews was organized around ritual purity or holiness. Purity could be lost if you touched the wrong thing or were in the presence of the wrong thing, and purity could be regained. And the Old Testament is full of all these examples of how the ancient Hebrews would lose ritual purity and how they would regain ritual purity. In fact, much of the book of Leviticus is just about that. Ritual purity and impurity. And so what we see then is that the Bible presents sin as something that is to be understood as defiling a person, making us unclean and dirty. And the ancient Hebrews understood that. The things that we weren't supposed to deal with when we dealt with them, they defiled us, they made us unclean and they made us dirty. And what that did was disqualified us from life with God. And so they had to become ritually clean. But those rituals only dealt with the outward, the external, not the interior of humanity. But Jesus Christ cleanses us and purifies us with his blood, with the sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, we have an internal and true cleansing. If sin is that which defiles and makes dirty, the blood of Jesus is that which cleans and purifies. And it's real and it's true. Just as dirty as we feel from time to time, and you know what it means to feel dirty from sin. Well, the blood of Jesus cleanses us. And it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if sin is viewed as, and if sin feels as dirty, Jesus is the one who cleans. And we're cleaned, we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. In Christ, our sins, the guilt, the condemnation, the shame, the dirtiness, the weight are removed and then our lives are transformed. The dirtiness is removed and our lives are transformed. And in verse 22, the blood speaks of cleansing and forgiveness. Our hearts sprinkled clean and the water speaks of transformation. Our bodies washed. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This speaks of justification. That thing that happens at the moment of salvation when we repent of our sins and come to Jesus, we are justified by God. It's a legal declaration. It means that we're declared innocent and righteous. And what we then have at that moment is positional sanctification. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification means to be set apart and holy. And because of justification being declared by the blood of Jesus Christ, innocent and righteous, we have positional sanctification, that we stand before God positionally holy and set apart for his purposes. But then it says our bodies are washed with pure water. This is a picture not of baptism, but of practical sanctification. Sanctification is both at the moment of salvation and continuous through life. We are positionally sanctified when we accept Jesus, but then we are practically sanctified throughout our lives. The sprinkling with blood speaks of positional sanctification, justification, and the washing with water speaks of practical sanctification. That is, this idea that we are continually being transformed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. There you get it? Good. (laughs) Titus chapter 3, verse 5 speaks of this water. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which have been done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So we have been declared innocent and righteous, but we need to pursue daily sanctification. That is transformation in the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Word, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her. Here's what Christ does with the church. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And Jesus said in John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so there is to be this idea in the life of the believer that yes, we've been forgiven, but we need to pursue transformation. Yes, we have been transformed, but it is a continual process. Transformation is something that has happened and is happening. And we need to pursue a relationship with the Holy Spirit who transforms us and we need to spend time in the word of God that is transformative in our lives that we might not be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our minds that we look less like the world and more like Jesus. That is the goal of Christian theology is that we would live lives of worship and adoration and that we would be living lives of continual transformation. And so you got to ask yourselves now for application. Are you a worshiper? In sincerity of heart, daily cultivating adoration toward God. If not, why not? And are you living a transformed life? Let me just give it to you simple, and this is the last thing I'll say. Every Christian should be able to point to A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, how they've been transformed by the Spirit of the living God. If your life hasn't been transformed, my brother, my sister, I don't know if you've been born again by the Spirit of God because He makes us new creations. We are not perfect overnight, but you had better believe that we are in a process of being changed. You had better believe that. And Jesus said that the world would know Christians by their fruit. And so we should be able to look in our own lives and say, there's some fruit. Yeah, man, I've been changed. Woo, I'm not exactly where I want to be. I'm still pretty funky, but I've been changed. I've been set free from this. I've been healed of that. I've been cleansed of this. The power of this is broken in my life. I've been changed here. My attitude has been made right here. This relationship has been healed, set free, transformed, redeemed. Christian, we ought to be able to look and see transformation in our lives. Because our God is a God of transformation. He's a God of new things. He's a God who takes us from glory to glory and who transforms and conforms us to the image of Christ that we might exist for the glory of God in a broken world. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful truths. We We clap and we applaud because they're beautiful but we want our lives to be consistent with them. So Holy Spirit, come and work transformation in our lives. Lord, you know the things that we're struggling with. We want to come before you with sincerity of heart. We don't want to play games. We want to come before you and just boldly say, Father, here's what I'm dealing with. Please help me. Thank you that when we approach you, we can expect sympathy, acceptance, mercy and grace and kindness and compassion. So we come before you this morning, Lord, asking the Holy Spirit you would do a transformative work in our lives. Prayer team is here to help you this morning. Communion is here to remember that the veil of his flesh was broken for us and the way has been made wide that we're able to enter in. So let's press in and let him work in us.